Alright, hey everyone. Uh, this is so I'm going to try to start trying to do after every few games. Uh, it's the line-by-line, line-by-line uh, line report, whatever you want to call it. Pretty much it's just me going back and taking extensive notes on the little things that happen during the game and just trying to analyze you know, certain cycles that happen throughout the game, uh, little passes or clears or zone entries or zone exits that kind of altered bigger plays in the game that kind of get overlooked or nobody necessarily uh, talks about. It's a very long process, at least it is for me, of getting the information and kind of organizing it in a way that I want to regurgitate it back to you guys. So it's taking a lot of time. Uh, it's taking way more time than I like it, than I thought it would take. Uh, and I, I'm picking up on ways to cut down on the time of gathering the information I got and all the data I have, uh, but it just didn't happen this week. I mean, a lot of the stuff came up this week, and uh, I'm kind of upset. I'm going to be putting this out after the Stars game tonight. By the way, that's why I'm recording this uh, a couple hours before the Flyers play the Stars. Uh, and that information won't be out until later in the week, but this is for the Canucks, the Flames, and the Oilers' losses. And pretty much what I'm going to do... And by the way, as you can tell, this is not going to be polished at all. Uh, I'm just, I want to get this out because I've been looking at the same information and numbers for a week now. And it's, I just, I, I got to share with you guys. But what's going to happen is after every game, I'm going to go in, uh, take notes during the game. After the game's done, I'm going to, I go in, uh, track all the unblocked shots that happened at 5-on-5 five five during the game. See who was on the ice for them, what time it took place, uh, what type of shot, all those types of things. Organize that, and then determine where the home plate area chances came from. And the home plate area, pretty much, because I know I've been throwing around in the last couple articles I'm going to talk about now, it's a high danger chance. It's pretty much the slot, uh, the inside of the face-off circles from the face-off dot to the uh, edge near the slot. And you pretty, it pretty much just slopes down towards the crease. So pretty much any chances for men there are what are regarded as high uh, home plate area chances. It's supposed to you know, quantify higher quality chances that a team provides. Uh, do that. And then figure out who they're on the ice against. Uh, figure out, you know, go back and determine when the cycles happen in the game, like I already mentioned look into whether or not uh, the icings that took place when the players were on the ice were forced or if they caused the icings, uh, things like that. Uh, and pretty much the whole idea behind this is there There seems to be two different sets of uh, fans. Uh, there's eye test fans and analytics fans, and I'm trying to display the analytics and then break down how we got to those underlying numbers, if that makes sense. And... Not all the information is going to be important, like when you're losing 6-1 to one to the Oilers uh, in the third period of an October regular season game. You don't really need to go down and break down that five-goal difference in the third to see what, what the lines were doing. like that. So, like for example, this week I, I took in all the information for the Canucks game. That was a close game the entire time. Score effects kind of came into effect in the third period. That was the first part of the season where they didn't look that great during about a 10-minute stretch in the first period. Uh, but, you know, close game. Shootout game uh, went to a shootout. Everything in that game is vital because it was close the entire time. Flames game, they came out looked like shit. Uh, I still went back and I, I wanted to see how 
the start was so slow because it was a, a horrible start. And then also AV switched up the lines for the third period. I went in and tried to break down what type of style those lines played, how they played together in the limited time they had. And then the Oilers game, I broke down again the bad start, who was kind of responsible for those plays. And then pretty much analyzed everything up until the McDavid goal because that was pretty much the turning point. And then I'll break down what happened on the the goals and the penalties after that, but I didn't really go in and extensively break down, you know, cycles and zone entries and everything in a 6-1 to one game because, again, like, why? But, you know, it just, you got to bear with me because this is, uh, I'm going to be trying to coordinate this with a post I have not made yet. I've made a, a bunch of the graphs. I don't know what I'm going to actually put into the post, but this is definitely the best way to get as much information as I can to you guys and also present it in a way that you're actually going to want to take it in. Because what I did for the first two games was uh, the same exact process, except I didn't know some of the shortcuts to take when it came to uh, organizing the information. And then I was pretty much writing novels that I thought nobody else would would want to read after I was done reading it. Because all I was doing was I was spending so much time. I'll give you an example of what I why I wanted to do this and not the the other way around was whatever example of a play you want to pick from the first two games like if there was a cycle where Ralph Wontorinsky hit somebody and he created a change in possession I'd have to spend I would spend half an hour 45 minutes describing that situation and writing it out and then also telling you why that was important when really it's probably easier for me to just say what happened over a podcast or you see it visually but I I don't really have the technology to do it visually yet because I have a Chromebook. That's a whole thing. But uh figured telling you the plays over the podcast where you can look at the numbers and the graphs and the posts would be the easy way, easiest way to do it. So I wouldn't just be on here by myself repeating percentages and numbers because, you know, that's not really the most entertaining thing. And also you wouldn't be reading things you can just see on a replay or it would be easier for me to convey to you guys what happened. So that's a little bit of the process, and again, this week with the West Coast uh, West Coast games, uh, and Steve and I, unfortunately, as you know, we weren't able to get a fly properly out. That's not because we weren't trying. That's because we spent three hours on Thursday, and technology was technology. Technology kind of hate kind of hates us, but that's we'll we'll get into that later on. But uh, so yeah, let's get into the games here. Uh, I'm only going to br- briefly mention the numbers because, as I said, you guys can see them. But I want to start with the Canucks game. And let's start with the Limblom Katoria connecting line, which we saw a lot of in the first couple games. And they played pretty well on uh, last Saturday against the Canucks as well. They posted a 68.18 Corsi 4 percentage and 64.71 Fenwick 4 percentage, aka unblocked shots 4 percentage, uh, in 1249 on uh, ice time. Lost the quality battle. They uh, had a 39.89 expected goals for percentage and gave up uh, the first four home plate area shots on goal, including a, a Brock Besser uh, goal against. The first chance they had from the home plate area that wasn't blocked at 5 and 5 came from Konechny with uh, 450 left. Uh, and they were on the ice for the goal against, but I don't really put that on them. I put that more on Justin Braun. Uh, what happened was a play behind the net resulted in the puck. Hopping up on the dasher of uh, behind the net, on uh, and it kind of rolled along the glass to get around Provorov and went to J.T. Miller in the corner. 
He threw it back to Tanev at the point. Tanev shot it, and uh, Pedersen was in front for a redirection. Hart wasn't able to grab the rebound, and instead of bodying uh, Besser in the slot, Braun went and tried to whack the puck as hard as he could, and Besser just put his skate behind the shot and shot it in. So Braun didn't have the best positioning there. He could have he could have done more there, uh, but they were on the the ice for that goal against. But really, uh, the big takeaways for from this line is uh, you have two guys that just get the puck back at will all over the ice in Limblom and Couturier, and then a a, a finisher and connect name, maybe the best finisher on the team. Uh, and we saw it early on, and we've seen it early on. Uh, but I I think what makes uh, Limblom and Couturier so dangerous all over the ice is their ability to have uh, active sticks, as Eddie Olchuk would, you know, scream. Uh, but I think the best example of this in this particular game was during a during uh, Torrenti's penalty kill after Torrenti took a, the undisciplined cross checking penalty. Uh, Limblom was able to get a stick on a cross ice pass through the slot that allowed Hart to be able to move from left to right to stop a scoring chance. If uh, Limbaugh didn't get a stick on it, it would have been pounded home and the Flyers would have been down uh, 2 nothing early in the game. Another example of his active stick from this game came just about seven minutes in when Quinn Hughes, who is a pretty dynamic blue liner for the Canucks now, as we're starting to see around the league, but uh, uh, started wheeling in the offensive zone and was about to... Uh, cut to the net along uh, through the right circle, and Limblom was able to pickpocket him real quick and start the puck up the uh, up ice with no problem. Uh, it was a very casual play and a very easy takeaway considering uh, who he was stealing it from. But uh, And together, uh, they had a pretty nice play. You know, not it's not a play out of the routine, but it's an example of what they can bring every single night. Uh, Limblom went in on a four-check on Tyler Myers. Tyler Myers uh, was kind of forced to position his body in a weird way because of the forecheck, ended up stumbling because he's Tyler Myers and uh, not that great, but he tumbled right in front of Markstrom. Markstrom had to make a panic play and push it to Edler in the corner. Edler was pressured by Konechny, and he'd flipped it up, tried to clear the zone, went right to Katori at the point to keep a cycle going. A very mundane play that is not noteworthy, but honestly, for guys like Limblom and Katorier and for this type of this type of uh, report or whatever I'm trying to provide here, I they're the reasons why it's probably taking so long. Because if, if you really wanted to, I could just make a three-hour podcast about the little things that Limblom and Katori do every game. And, you know, going back and looking at this, they have some mistakes, which we'll point out in the Oilers game. But more times than not, when people talk about players doing the little things, they're talking about these two people. And we're going to get into the, the whole defense of fourth-line players or... Robert Hag or other guys that, you know, sometimes people will try and sound smart by saying, well, they actually had a pretty good play here to counter the fact that they obviously suck. But when you go back and you watch and you see a lot of the, the plays over and over again, you can still see they're not, they're still not holding up their own. But players like Limbaugh and Couturier, they're very good all over the ice with the active stick, and there's really not too many things they do wrong out there. And when it, uh, when it comes to Konechny, uh, you know, obviously I, I said he's a big finisher, but in this game he had two amazing passes to Limblom. Uh, he had the no-look pass that froze Stetcher, Pearson, um, Markstrom, and Edler in front, I think, on uh, Limblom's game-tying goal on the power play late. He also had another really good pass to Limblom earlier in the game on a 3-on-1. Uh, and he was able, he set up a very good cross-size pass to Limblom, but Limblom just uh, ate shit while he was trying to shoot and lost an edge and wasn't able to get 
contact on it. Uh, but if he if he connects on that shot, he's probably being Markstrom. It was one of the better scoring chances in the game. And with the way that Markstrom was playing that night, you probably needed to you needed some something spectacular to beat him. Which again, you know, backup goalies and or not backup goalies, but I guess not big name goalies coming through against the Flyers is a common complaint. But uh, I mean, this week I don't I don't know what else they could have really done against Markstrom or Koskinen besides you know score. But they did provide a lot of pressure, and I thought they deserved better. Honestly, this line. I know AV's got the early season line blender going on, but Limblom Katoria connecting, I think, is a line that's going to come back once uh, once the uh, early season dust settles here, and AV kind of has a feeling what guys he has in the locker room. Next up, we have uh, Giroux, Hayes, and JVR. So, by the way, for the Vancouver game, I'm just rolling through each of the lines in Paris to see what notes I have to just get them out of the way for this game, and then I'll talk more about the Calgary game. Uh, Drew Hayes and JVR, 70 course of four percentage, 69.23 Fenwick forward percentage, 80.27 expected goals four percentage, and they had all three of the home plate area shots on goal while they were out there on the ice, so just 740 uh, time on the ice. I like the appeal of this line. Uh, I think this is the line that, this is a, a line that can help JVR a lot, uh, who has gotten a fair amount of chances so far this season. He's just he he'll eventually score. He, he's coming up on a goal here, but I think Hayes and Giroux are two good supporting players to help set him up because JVR isn't the best at creating for himself. Uh, Drew's pretty good at creating for others, and I feel like Hayes is a Hayes is a, a little bit like a Couturier type who is just a big guy that can get the puck when he wants and is pretty good at finishing and setting up. Uh, let's look at some examples that they have from this game. And actually, working out the point I just said, uh, JVR in this game uh, did not have a single unblocked shot attempt with while out there with Drew and Hayes. So it didn't really work as I envisioned, I guess. But JVR did have his chances in the game. Uh, and I think the best a chance I want to talk about to utilize as a JVR scoring chance and kind of talk a little bit about something I noticed on the power play they're doing differently. Last season, and maybe even 2017, it's 2017-18. I can't can't quite remember with Malblock. Uh, they started doing this play with Simmons and JVR down low, where Giroux will pass it out a couple feet wide of the post, so then the player that's uh, set up near the post can grab it and turn around and look for a shot two feet from the net, rather than just a redirection uh, in front. And it looks like they're utilizing it again this year, except it looks like when they get it down low, or at least when I recognize it with JVR. He's not just standing on, he's not moving a foot over, getting it, and just looking for the shot right away. He's moving a few feet out, catching it, standing there, and waiting to see if somebody's cutting before he then puts a shot on net. Uh, This time, he got the puck down low. This was during the second period, I believe. Yeah, second period. So Vancouver was uh, killing off a a too-much-man penalty. And uh, JVR got the puck down low, circled out in front, made a really nice forehand-backhand move on Markstrom to put him on the ice, and then he hit the crossbar. Uh, and Markstrom also had a pretty nice save on JVR later in the game, uh, a save that, I mean, his puck placement looked like it should have been a goal, and he got robbed. So the chances are are coming from JVR. I guess I'm not too, too worried about him. We saw Voracek show signs of life against the Oilers, and then the other guy that some people I think are probably concerned about is Ghost. But I, I think, I think Ghost is just, I think Ghost is another matter of time too. Uh, he's he's shown flashes of uh, his old self, and we'll talk about that in the Oilers game. But um, 
As for Drew, Hayes, and JVR, uh, I'm going to talk about Drew a little bit in the next section because I'm about to do uh, the line of Drew, Hayes, and Voracek. But for Hayes, I think Hayes, the biggest play in the game that nobody, I don't think anybody picked up on was there was a... Sanheim got caught in a pinch. It was a three-on-one rush uh, led by Josh Levo against Matt Niskanen. Uh, it was a, it was the sequence where Niskanen was able to block the shot in the three-on-one, and then I think Levo got the rebound and like flubbed the shot that just went uh, just wide while Hart was sprawling back to the left post. If you watch the game, you know you know what play I'm talking about. But right after that, uh, as the puck goes behind the net, eventually Levo gets it back behind the net. Sandheim pins him against the boards, but Levo is still able to backhand a pass out in front that was going to Horvat on the right post while Hart was camped up on the... Or it was going to Horvat on the left post. Hart was camped out on the right post looking around the net to his right. If the puck gets to Horvat, it's a dunk. Hart looks like he doesn't know what he's looking at. Uh, would have been terrible. But Hayes was able to sweep in and stick lift Horvat and body him at the right time to prevent a scoring chance from there as well just a little thing it was a little thing that i don't think i i saw anybody react to on twitter but going back and rewatching the play it was a huge play in the game uh because it it kept it uh it kept it close then the line of drew hayes and Voracek. uh they were able to post at a high 50s Corsi four percentage of fenwick four percentage 60 percent for home plate area unblocked shots and shots on goal and a 56.56 expected goals for percentage and 631 time on the ice. Uh, they had five of the first seven unblocked shot attempts uh, while the three were on the ice out there, but then they allowed Vancouver to get the two final unblocked shot attempts over the last 10.35 of the second period before they were ultimately broken up in the third. Or I shouldn't say since they got benched. Since it, it seemed like Voracek was benched, uh, and, you know, that was a somewhat big story of the game was Voracek getting time with Raffle and I think Pitlick in the third period. People didn't know why. Went back. I tried to pinpoint it. I think I found a, a two plays during one cycle late in the second period that I, I think if I was a coach or if I was AV, I'd, I'd understand why he'd be upset. Uh, the first play came pretty much established the cycle was Voracek had the puck in the left corner time and space very lazily flips a puck that is knocked down and ultimately kept in by Tanner Pearson. Uh, then later in the cycle, as the Flyers are getting cycled on after a failed clear attempt, a puck is going back to Ben at the point, gliding on the ice, really not that quick, and Voracek is rushing over from the slot and kind of looks like he gives it uh, the Todd Pinkston. Like he, he kind of gator arms an attempt to put the stick out and break up the pass. It gets to Ben. Ultimately, because Voracek was rushing over and trying to break up the pass, uh, he was in the shooting lane for Ben. Uh, he was about 10 feet out from Ben and blocked into the stands to end the cycle. But, it, you know, the lazy clear and then also not putting the extra strata to in and full extension for to try and intercept the puck to lead to a shot attempt against. I, I can see how he may have gotten benched in the third in the third period for that. It also doesn't help that he only had one uh, five-on-five shot attempt all game, and it was it was blocked. Uh, Drew, uh, I put for some reason I put my notes for Drew down here again. This is the whole polished angle of this uh, podcast, but uh, I thought Drew had a couple pretty good games. Or pretty he had a p- couple pretty good games. He had a couple of good plays in that game. Uh, the first one I thought the one I liked the most was after the Besser goal. Uh, he had, he went out for a shift and had a pretty good response. Uh, had a between-the-legs deke and nearly set up JVR for a goal in front. 
before the Flyers uh, ultimately got the puck back, and then nearly set up Hayes for a chance after the uh, uh, after his own reentry. Uh, he also did kind of pass up a golden. He didn't kind of. He did pass up a golden opportunity uh, for a scoring chance in the the second period, I believe. Uh, it was an Edler misfire on a cross size pass to Tanev, and I, I think it was Tanev. Anyway. Pass and connect between the Canucks. Uh, Puck ultimately starts gliding into the slot in front of Markstrom. Drew picks it up, fakes a slap shot, and then instead of taking a shot by himself and alone, he decides to try and do a drop pass to Voracek, who is trailing into the slot, and it ends up getting broken up, and the Flyers don't get a chance at all. That's a play that um, I think a lot of people in Philly might enjoy hearing because they feel like, you know, the the shoot crowd, I guess, is what I'm aiming for here. But it really, there's a time and place that Drew kind of needed to take that fucking shot, and he decided to pass it up. And, uh, I mean, besides that, I do like what this line can bring. Uh, I mean, there's three very skilled players, and if this ends up being a second line, and Katori is able to carry maybe a lesser forward or two up on the top line. If this is the second line, the top six is going to be scary all year. That's why I've been really excited, or I've been waiting for the Patrick uh, the Patrick return, because I feel like once you had JVR and Patrick in the, as the third line, it's going to give the Flyers a lot of depth, and they're going to become real scary, because it looks like the defense is kind of stabilized, and now they're going to have Carter Hart in that. But anyway, moving on to JVR, Lawton, and Torinsky. Uh, looking at their numbers... They had a, a pretty good night at the office. Uh, they had 81.46 expected goals for percentage and owned 66% of the unblocked and uh, unblocked shot attempts and shot attempts overall. Uh, and even though there was only one attempt from the home plate area, it was a, it was a shot on goal from Torinsky. So they didn't get to the home plate area often, but they also prevented a lot of enclosed chances as well and they were able to dominate the the high quality battle as well because they had you know the eighty one expected goals four percentage. Uh, this line overall, it doesn't. I can I can see how it works as a bottom six line. I just again I don't like it because I feel I feel like it just makes JVR kind of worthless. I I mean like he can I feel like he can serve a role as being a big body player that you know can help cycle and get in the corners and everything. And Twarinski is pretty good at that as well. But I I think. Uh, JVR paired with Lawton Torinsky, I don't think anybody's going to be able to create for him. And I think creating offense by himself, I think he can finish pretty well, but creating for himself, I um, I don't think he's able to do that as well as some of the other Flyers' top six forwards. So I think he kind of needs a guy that sets him up, and that's that's not going to happen with Lawton and Torinsky. And Torinsky, out of these three, Torinsky was the story of the game against the Canucks, obviously, his first NHL goal. Very nice shot. Uh, it was a play that was set up by Justin Braun, who made an incredible three-line pass. Pass it from the Flyers' right defensive zone faceoff dot cross ice to Twerinsky at the Canucks blue line before he went in towards the left point, and then he ripped the shot home past Markstrom. Great shot, great play. Uh, the only thing, the big thing he did wrong in the game, obviously, was the penalty where he decided to go and cross check Vertanen. Welcome to me looking at my notes while I'm doing this. Uh, but after the play, didn't need to do it, was not a scrum or anything, cross-checks Vertanen right in front of a ref, in front of the benches, while the Flyers are down by a goal. Not a good play. Uh, not a smart play. Not a play you need 
a guy like Twerinsky or anybody else, a pit lick or a raffle. It's a dumb penalty for a guy in the bottom bottom six to take. You're not on the ice long enough. You can't give the opponents an advantage like that. Yada, yada, yada. You know the deal. Uh, when it comes to the third guy on the line, Lawton, the only notes, the only little plays I really want to point out, Lawton and Fortune are both uh, negative. But speaking to the idea that he, he may not have the offensive upside to help uh, JVR, I just noticed on a rush halfway through the game, he had plenty of time and space walking to the circle for a shot against Markstrom, and he just skied it. I mean, that's, you know, a little thing to point out against Lawton, kind of slamming on him. And then the other thing was, uh, G- uh, Jordy Ben uh, just walked him in the neutral zone in a one-on-one early in the game. Uh, Lawton just didn't move his feet and did such a poor job moving his feet or reacting to the puck carrier that Jordy Ben was able to make a move on him and get past him for his own entry before the Canucks ultimately uh, were offsides. But uh, like I was, this is, I think this can serve as a good bottom six line. It can be a fine third line. I just don't, I just don't, I just don't like it because I feel like it's just it's it's not utilizing JVR to the best of his strength. And then to close out the lines for this game, last and uh, in my opinion certainly the fucking least, uh, Raffle Bonham and Pitlick was an absolute disaster on Saturday night. Uh, two cycles uh, that both lasted well over a minute, or not technically not two cycles, but they spent about a, over a minute on two separate occasions during that Canucks game where they were just hemmed in their zone. One of them led to an icing, a bad play off the faceoff, and a goal against for Pearson's goal. But um, overall, they did not have a single on-block shot attempt, over, not from the home plate area, not that qualifier, literally at all. They were, um, And they allowed five on-block shot attempts overall. Uh, all three of the shots that took place... From the home plate area, while these three are on the ice, came off the sticks of Canucks. Uh, a Levo miss in the first, a Hughes shot on goal in the first, and a Pearson shot on goal in the second, where all that happened from the home plate area while these three are on the ice. Uh, their first really bad cycle came. Uh, Pitlick, Raffle, and Bunnaman were hemmed in the zone for a minute and 11 seconds uh, in the first period, and it was helped by Bunnaman losing a puck battle to Vertanen and Pitlick losing a puck race with Hughes. Honestly, looking at Bunneman and Pitlick, uh, they're kind of the big reasons why there's a problem in the bottom six. I've made a lot of jokes over Pitlick over the summer in terms of whether or not I want to like him or hate him. Watching some of the little stuff, I, I don't see what the appeal of having a player like Tyler Pitlick is on the roster. He seemingly ends cycles and doesn't really help extend cycles, and he doesn't really have an aggressive forecheck. He doesn't have any defensive traits that really kind of make you want him on your team. Uh, Bunneman, Bunneman, he's just not ready yet, honestly. He, uh, I mean, I think he had a three expected goals, four percentage against the Oilers. If that doesn't help, he's had numerous occasions. Uh, an example here, he had, like I said, he lost a puck battle with Vertanen. Uh, and just throughout the his time with the team, he just consistently was knocked off the puck. He usually had the puck taken from him. Uh, and he just couldn't generate anything offensively. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't think Bunham is good enough to ever play in the league. He's just he's just not ready. And you can tell when you watch him, he's not ready. I think more time in the AHL will help him. I wouldn't be surprised to see him pushing for a rush spot next year. Or even called up later in the year, maybe. But he's just not... It, yeah, this was... I think he looked worse than Verbiev did this. Well, obviously, he looked worse than Verbiev the start last year. But he just wasn't on his game uh, this time around. 
And on, on top of that beauty of a 111 cycle against, uh, these two were also on the ice for plenty of defensive zone time after Torrency's goal. Uh, they were hemmed in their own zone thanks to um, losing a couple board battles, and then uh, Boneman, unfortunately, had two plays where he could have gotten it out of the zone, ended up giving it back to Canucks twice. And uh, Pitlick was eventually able to get it out, but wasn't able to get it deep. Puck was barely out of the zone. Patterson brought it back in. It resulted in a loose puck that Bunneman decided to take a chop at that went all the way down the ice for an icing. Uh, that left these three out there with Sanheim and Braun on the ice. And Sanheim and Braun, I, I like Braun so far. Uh, he hasn't given me much to hate about him besides his speed. And he does tend to be, he tends to take away the goalie's eyes every once in a while and also plays like where he didn't clear out the crease early in the game are going to happen because he's a stay-at-home defenseman. Um, but on the ice together, they haven't played a lot together so far this season. Uh, it seemed like there's a miscommunication. After the faceoff, Sandheim bolted from, you know, below the flyer side of the dot out to the point to try and get the puck and get out of the zone. Levo bait him to it, passed it to Pedersen. Not Patterson. He passed it to Tanev at the left point. Sanheim then kind of just sits in the slot rather than dropping back uh, down low to help in the crease. Braun then decides to drift out and try and block a Tanev shot. So you have uh, Sanheim high in the slot. You have Tanev drifting through the left circle. And then that leaves Michael Raffle in front to box out both Horvat and Tanner Pearson. Uh, Pearson uh, Tanev takes a shot. Pearson has a uncontested redirection attempt in front that Hart didn't stand a chance on. So this line getting hemmed into their zone, you know, you think fourth fourth linemen just don't matter, who cares? Put guys out there, you know, people freaking out or people not understanding why everybody's freaking out about Stewart. Situations like these are why you want to kind of focus on the fourth line. By the way, the thing about Stewart, I'm not I'm I'm personally not freaking out too too much about Stewart, but this is that's an argument for why you want to have better players on the fourth line because these situations happen. Where these guys go out, they get hemmed in their own zone. Stupid shit happens on an icing, and then you have a goal against, and it's why your best players are on the ice. Uh, they, I, I really don't know what to make of. I, I think Raffles had a fine season so far. To to me, I think he has a. It looks like he has an extra step this season, and that's helped him just kind of have a burst to create offensive chances out of nothing, and also draw penalties uh, in situations that I don't think he would have last year. I don't think he had the same burst that he does this year. And it might be because AV is trying to use him a little bit more as an energy player and maybe isn't utilizing the fourth line as much. But I think Raffles looked good so far this year, and I think he looks different than he did last year. Please, everybody, calm the fuck down. This is all talk about Michael Raffles. This is the only time I'll pump Michael Raffles' tires. But I thought he's been... I, I think he's been fine so far. I'm not saying move him up to the top six, but for a fourth line energy guy... He's had bursts of energy that have created scoring chances, scored a goal, and draws penalties out of those situations. In fact, in this game, I believe he drew... This game didn't draw a penalty. I know he's drawn penalties in the first couple games, and he did uh, against the the Flames as well, I believe. All right, now let's move on to the defensive pairs that were utilized in this game. And I'm really... I'm not going to go too, too much into... Uh, I guess the little plays here, just because I was going to talk about in general how, just kind of the makeup of these pairs so far. Uh, Provorov and Braun, I think that can be a shutdown pair for the Flyers. Uh, Provorov's mobility helps where Braun lacks, but Braun also has 
I mean, he's shown so far he's pretty good with outlet passes, which, again, that's a huge narrative thrown around with the stay-at-home defenseman. But he had the Twerinsky three-line pass. He's had a, a bunch of other little passes that I think have gone on notice that are pretty nice stretch passes that set up uh, odd man rushes against. Um, and Braun, I, it, it's the idea of a mobile blue liner with a stay-at-home defenseman. So Pro Roth is going to... Provorov's got an amazing ability to get the puck out of the zone by himself. He's shown it a, a couple times this season already, and we know what he can do. Just It doesn't matter where he gets the puck in the defensive zone. It doesn't matter where he's facing. It doesn't matter who's around him. He has the ability to skate around everybody and avoid contact and just carry the puck into the neutral zone to alleviate uh, offensive pressure against. Uh, you pair that with a guy who should be able to clean up the little things, you know, uh, box people out in front. Uh, break up centering passes. Uh, it, it should work out pretty well for them all year, and it has worked out pretty well for them all year. And they're both guys that Prawn doesn't have a ton of offensive upside, but they're both pretty effective two-way defensemen, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I'm tr- let's look at some of the little things real quick. I mean, the the big mistake in this game came from Braun, which was he, again, that was a play that, he just needs. I think he needs to put his body into it, or he needs to just kind of be aware of who was around the net at the time. He just, he he was kind of. He just wasn't expecting a Carter Hart rebound, I guess. But it was deflected, and also, if you're near the slot, you should probably start looking for opponents anyway. Uh, Sandheim Niskanen, I I like Sandheim Niskanen a lot. I don't know why I said it like that, but I I definitely get the appeal of this line or pair, I should say. I I love Sandheim. But he does, uh, he he's does have a lot of mental gaffes, or he's had a lot of mental mistakes so far. I think, and I think Niskanen's done a, done a pretty good job of erasing those. As we were talking about earlier, the three on one play, where it's not a bad pinch by Sandheim. He just got a little, he just got caught up and out of position, and he, you know you can't really always leave your team in that position. But it's nice to have a guy like Niskanen who. It's going to sound like a dumb thing to say. He's shown a knack for breaking up odd man rushes. This wasn't the only one he's he's done. He did a few in the preseason, and I think he had one, if I remember correctly, I had one against the, the Blackhawks. So that's him paired with Sandheim is, is perfect because that kind of lets Sandheim activate more and be more aggressive offensively. That's why I'm pushing for Ghost not to be with Hag. I want him to be with Braun or Niskanen so they can kind of help cancel out the risky plays that these offensive players are going to be making. But but going back to Niskanen and, and uh, breaking up odd man rushes, along with the three-on-one early in the second, he also had another one later in the second where uh, Sandheim again was in a board battle just inside the uh, left point for the Canucks. Gets the puck knocked away. It's uh, Levo and Pearson coming back the other way. Niskanen is able to drop down and effectively poke check the puck away from Levo uh, in the slot. It's it's just a knack he has for breaking up those types of plays. And unfortunately, I can't find it in my notes right now. But the exact play I'm thinking of for uh, why Niskanen is a good fit for Sandheim at this point in time with Sandheim's, uh, I guess, defensive mindset. I don't know. What, I don't know how to phrase it. But there was a particular counter rush from the Canucks. They had just gotten the puck in the defensive zone. Niskanen and Sandheim were set up to uh, uh, battle against the three-on-two against. Uh, engage for a three-on-two rush against. Sandheim is set up way to the left. Uh, he's lined up 
in a line with uh, the guy furthest to the left on the rush. Niskanen is positioned between the middle guy and the guy on the right. As they're coming down the ice, and as the, the, the player in the middle carries the buck towards the boards, Sandheim follows that player over to help support Niskanen with a board battle. And so it's those two Canucks, Niskanen and Sandheim, and then I believe it was Levo who just cut to the net. And after Niskanen lost the board battle, Sandheim was near the board battle and couldn't get in the passing lane, and a pass to Levo on the slot just bounced over his stick, and it could have easily been a scoring chance. Again, I know I took notes on it. I don't know where they are right now. This is part of the early stages of this, of me trying to iron this all out, but that was an example that I know uh, Sandheim needs to show better uh, defensive awareness, I guess. And it's just Niskanen. I... Steve and I have talked about the signings of Niskanen and Braun over the summer and how they can be positive in terms of uh, how they help the younger players like Ghost and Sandheim and Provorov kind of uh, kind of take a little bit of weight off their shoulders and let them uh, show their offensive instincts more. And so far, I, I we haven't seen the offensive upside, but Niskanen and Braun have done more than their fair share of little plays to help uh, keep the games close. And last but not least for the pairs, uh, Ghost and Hack. Uh, so far this season, I think Ghost has kind of looked a little unsure himself in the defensive zone. I think he started stepping up. Uh, I mean, against the Oilers, he started looking better because he started stepping up in the neutral zone and started picking off passes and also created that chance for Drew. Early in the second period, it was still a game. But uh, defensively, I think he and Hag just kind of, they, they kind of struggle sometimes in their own end. Uh, Hag honestly hasn't, I don't even know what his numbers look like uh, so far this year, but Hag hasn't looked as bad as he usually does. But still, there's plenty. still making plenty of mistakes out there. And also, I don't know if this is just something I've noticed because it's Hag, and maybe I'm more open to it, but or more noticing it more because of that. But there's a... Uh, the, the play that uh, the Flyers defensemen make when they have a zone entry. They'll enter the zone. There's a forward... Um, at the point for them that they hand it off to, and they kind of do a give and go around a an opponent that is right there, and uh, the defender will pass it to the person on their left or right, and then keep cutting to the net, and they'll look for a saucer pass back. And I've noticed Hag. I feel like I've seen Hag do it the most, and then also Hag uh, sometimes forget that sometimes forgets that he cut and will stand there for a second or two while the puck is moving away from him. And then he starts moving back down the ice. And, I, you know, it's Hag. So you can't really afford to waste those seconds with him and put him out of position. So I don't know. Again, I, I'm I, I'm assuming all the defensemen are doing it. I've just noticed the most for Hag. I don't know if it's something that A.V. has said, you know, trying to implement a little bit more. And Hag's like, fuck it, I'm doing every time down there. I don't know what the deal is, but I have noticed that with him. Uh, Ghost, from this game in particular, the flash is that Ghost is... Um, Still doing ghost things. Uh, he held the puck in the left circle for about 20 seconds to set up. Not about 20 seconds. About 5 seconds. <laughs> a little over exaggeration there. To set up a scoring chance in the third period, I believe. And then also he faked the slap shot and made a nice move to get Pedersen the drop. So kind of like, you know, kind of get him the fall over on that fake shot attempt before he set up a scoring chance as well. So he's... It's not the usual ghost things. We still haven't really seen a, a full throttle uh, ghost shimmy at the blue line. We haven't seen him kind of make a a severe cut that kind of knocks somebody off balance. But there are flashes that he's still 
he's still he's still being ghost. It's just I think uh, I I don't know. Uh, I think being paired with Hag is not the best option for him. I want them. I want him paired with Braun or Niskanen. So then, a Ghost can be unleashed and kind of go do ghost like things and jump up on a rusher, go down low and help cycle and things that you want to utilize with an, uh, an offensive minded defenseman and he's able to do things offensively that most defensemen across the league can't so putting him you have him on the third pair you can just utilize it more by giving giving him soft minutes and kind of letting kind of instilling in Hag's mind that he should be the one that stays at home and lets Gossipier go out and kind of do his thing it, that should be what's going on I haven't seen it in full use yet, not as effective as the other pairs, and I think that might be because Hag isn't as good as as Bronner Niskanen. Moving on to the uh, the Flames game, uh, I wanted to first start talking about Chris Stewart. I think Chris Stewart was obviously the biggest storyline of that game against Stewart. Uh, the Flames on Tuesday, the Flyers didn't play Tuesday, uh, against Tuesday, but uh, and in his Flyers debut, he played nine twelve. Uh, Tom and I all at 5-on-5. Uh, he didn't register any shots on goal. Uh, and he recorded a 35.71 Corsi 4 percentage with 5 shot attempts, 4, 9 against, and a 36.09 expected goals 4 percentage. So not great, but I mean, in his defense, it was his first game in the NHL in a while. And he coming a couple games into the season after just traveling with the team and not really, I guess, fully getting in the game action. But... That's if you really want to, I guess, defend his roster spot right now. Uh, on Tuesday, he mainly worked with Torinsky and Raffle. Uh, they spent 4-4 together, uh, and they did not produce uh, a single... They didn't produce a single unblocked shot attempt the entire game, uh, and they didn't see a single home plate area uh, shot on goal or shot attempt the entire game either way. In general, that night, the, the fourth line really... They, they got cycled on a few times. They didn't really generate too much offensive pressure themselves the best play Stewart made that night uh was he helped Voracek win a board battle with Giordano in the corner then circled out to the front of the net and nearly redirected a hag shot from the the top of the slot end Uh, besides that uh it looked like a guy who you know hasn't played in the league for a bit um a little bit slow on a couple plays uh lost the puck in his skates a couple times uh, fell over trying to catch a pass in the defensive zone, or tripped over his own skates, I mean, uh, and also was knocked on his ass in the board battle in the second period. But, you know, these are all things, those aspects of the game he'll get used to again because, you know, he's a professional hockey player. But I uh, I don't know. I still don't really see the appeal of Chris Stewart in the lineup. I I don't know. That We'll see if it ever comes to fruition. But I think that's just a guy at the end of the line. We'll see. Um, as for the, as for the game, I thought the problems against Calgary and Edmonton was how the game started. Very slow starts and from people you wouldn't expect to really, uh, let the team down, uh, I guess immediately against the Flames, the first shift of the game, um, Limblom or, um, JVR, Hayes and Drew get pinned in their zone. Uh, it starts with a Lindholm shot on goal that goes to the corner, uh, and he beats out JVR for a loose puck and then pretty much the Flyers just kept getting... Uh, beat the loose pucks because the Flames kept throwing pucks at the net. Uh, caught the Flyers standing still just with all the changes in direction, and they just kept racking up. Um, they just kept racking up shot, uh, shot attempts until uh, a hand of fan cross ice pass attempt was shanked and went right to Drew, and Drew was able to clear the zone. But after they exited the zone, uh, Kyrie was able to bring the puck back um, up ice. 
Eventually, the Flyers got possession again on a zone exit. Couturier hit Konechny with a pass. Konechny passed in a neutral zone, uh, fired behind Provorov, which set up uh, an opportunity for the Flames to go into the zone with possession, but Couturier was able to beat Backlund to a loose puck, nudge it to Braun, which is when you saw the the flip from Braun go directly to Froelich at the blue line, and then you saw Braun run into Elliott to take out his leg while Froelich took the shot. So a lot of that's on Braun, um, but not... Still, in terms of getting out of the gates and making a statement, it wasn't the first. It wasn't the best shift shift from, uh, or the best shit from either of those those top lines. And then the next night in Edmonton, uh, the Drysdale's goal pretty much comes from uh, Couturier and Drew's inability to get the puck out of the zone, high in the zone, and then on a, an attempt to get on an attempt to get the puck out of the zone, uh, a puck hits off Limblom and goes into the slot to McDavid, which in turn helps give the puck to Drysaddle open in the in the dot, because when the puck was turned over by Limblom, JVR was already stricken to the neutral zone looking for an outlet pass, and Sanheim was even with Limblom. So once the puck went to McDavid, Sanheim was even with McDavid, and Drysaddle was in the circle alone. Not the best spot to leave Drysaddle. I still think Hart had a shot to stop that shot i i don't know um and i i know i said earlier in the recording i this was before the stars game ended up doing part of this afterwards so i did see the stars game tonight and um i mean hearts uh hearts had a couple off nights and that's not the reason why they've lost but the flyers have i, I think they've carried play well they carried play pretty well against the oilers um tonight i think the stats look fine but it's a lot more score effects and perimeter play but we'll talk about that we'll talk about that for uh for next week um going back to the flames game uh on top of on top of the early start or the bad starts uh another thing that hurt them was another icing play that came after um an icing that could have been avoided uh this one I put more on the on the officiating really than the team themselves, I guess. But uh, it looked like Lawton beat out uh, Rasmus Anderson for an icing call, uh, and then he started talking with the officials. Drew came over and started talking with the officials. It looked like there it could have been dropped at center ice. They end up dropping it back in the zone, in the flyer zone. Uh, they. Uh, Flyers end up winning the faceoff. Niskan flips it down the ice. Looks like Giordano's kind of milking it going back for the icing call. JJ kind of makes a point of it on the on the broadcast, too. Get called for icing again. Puck comes back down the ice. That's when the uh, Maggiapani goal uh, happens. Uh, it hit Sanheim in front and redirect, redirects past uh, Elliott, it looks like. Um, so, yeah, back-to-back games, just uh, the... And icing has come back to haunt the Flyers. That's kind of the reason why I wanted to track icings in the first place, just because it's not an aspect of the game that uh, I guess people talk about really when it comes to dominating play. And there are a lot of times that icing is just an errant pass, and it's not because the opponents are getting a, a ton of offensive pressure on. But there are times when icings work in the sequences where you know a long cycle is going on and they flip it down the ice and then that team dominates again with cycling and flips it down the ice. So if you see two or three icings in a row and you go back and you watch the tape and they're all forced, that's I think that's pretty noteworthy in terms of you know telling whether or not a team is doing pretty well. Another thing I wanted to talk about uh, from the aspect of the the Calgary game was just uh, Av. 
Uh, just switch up the lines going into the third period. It didn't really help that much in, in that game. Uh, they did end up scoring a goal thanks to um, Konechny setting up Niskanen pretty well. Konechny's uh, passing ability uh, on display early in the season. Uh, as He also set up uh, Couturier for the goal tonight, which, again, we'll talk about next week. Uh, but the the lines going into the third period were Drew, Couturier, Konechny. We know what they can bring. We've watched them play for many years now. Or a couple last couple seasons. Uh, Limblom, Hayes, and JVR. I think, to me, I, I think that line uh, maybe lack. Well, it doesn't really lack speed, but I I think that would be a line that lets JVR uh, get set up and score goals. And the things that I've been talking about with Torinsky and um, Lawton, that I don't think he would get the same benefits of playing with Limblom and Hayes. I, I think that they. They set, they're pretty good at setting up other players, and JVR is pretty good at getting in front of the net, looking for redirections, and uh, getting a lot of greasy goals. So I think that could be a pretty good line. Uh, and, I mean, if Drew Couturier are connected with him, that's a pretty good top six, even though, again, didn't, it didn't pan out on Tuesday. Uh, the other two lines were Torinsky, Lawton, and Voracek, which, uh, you know, that's the same thing with JVR, uh, with Voracek. And I know... Somebody's got to play down there. It's just really we're waiting on the Patrick injury to make the third line, uh, I guess, potent again because nothing against Twarinski and Lawton, but if they're on the same line, that feels like more of a fourth line than a third line. So right now, this, this team's been doing pretty well in terms of driving play, but they don't have a bottom six to kind of help with the scoring chances. Uh, and a perfect example of that is the fourth line going into the third period of that game was Pitlick, Raffle. And Stewart on defense, uh, he switched out the Sandheim Proveroff, which uh, I think in theory should work well. Part of it, part of the problem, like early on, uh, is just telling that Sandheim likes to. Uh, he he kind of has a mental mistake every once in a while. Doesn't has a couple mental gaffes, and uh, that's kind of been what Niskanen's been left to clean up. Uh, Proveroff may not be as. I don't know what the word is, defensively oriented to stay back and kind of, I guess, not jump up in the play as much as Niskanen, obviously, uh, because Provorov is, like I was saying before, he is probably the guy we want the most from the back end, uh, initiating play up the ice in terms of speed and going through the neutral zone and entering the zone with speed. Uh, And then Ghost and Braun, again, speaking of speed, the switching of uh, Sandheim and, and Ghost and Niskanen on these pairs. I think this leaves the ghost Braun pair with maybe a little less speed because Ghost is, uh, he can make cuts pretty quickly and he can put a move one-on-one with somebody pretty well. But straight line speed, he's not necessarily the the fastest guy. Um, but, I mean, I do, I, I want the ghost Braun pair. That's kind of, that's what I want to see work now. And not really necessarily like the defense hasn't been working. It's just, uh, I, I think that there's a lot, being left on the table in terms of what Ghost can offer as a player. And I think we're seeing it right now as we go through another game where he, he didn't really show too much offensive upside. Uh, I, I think we can get more out of Ghost right now than what is currently on the ice. I don't think this is what Goss is. I don't think this is what he's going to be with the team. This year going forward, I think it's just right now while it's early season and new coach are trying to figure out things. So I think he'll eventually get the most out of out of um, out of ghosts going forward, and then the last pair was Hag Niskanen, which I'm just not a big fan of because they struggle getting the puck out of the zone. And there was uh, a few instances of that against Calgary where 
they were on the ice waiting for a line change to occur for both teams. And after they waited in their own zone, they just couldn't get the puck out. And they kept trying to wrap it around the one another. But neither would kind of make progress up the ice successfully. They just kind of kept getting turned back into the zone. So I think that is a problem with that pair. Uh, Defensively, in theory, that should be a great pair. Uh, But I think it would be a little too one-dimensional because I don't think the offense would be there. So I'm not, I don't want to see it, I, I really, I don't even want to see it used in a defensive situation, really, because I, I think they would struggle. I mean, if a team is down and you know they're going to be coming full steam ahead to try and score the, the game-tying goal, I don't think I want Hag and Niskanen out there because I don't think they would, I don't think they would be able to alleviate pressure or, or stop cycles as well as any other combination of the six uh, defensemen available. And then finally, we get to the Oilers game, which honestly, I'm not, I really don't want to, I don't, I can't break it down really extensively, just because, I mean, it was the the second period where things went wrong, and I don't even know if they really, I I know a lot of people want to hear it, but I think the game on Wednesday was just more bad luck, honestly. I mean, the game tonight doesn't really help that case, but they threw a lot there were a lot of pucks at Miko Koskinen and a lot of high-quality chances that just want to go in, and they really weren't giving up. The only chance they gave up was the lob pass to Connor McDavid, which I is a, pretty much a cheat code. But So what I'm going to do for that game, and since I've already kept you here for 53 minutes and I've been looking at these numbers for fucking ever, i just I got to get this out at this point. Um, the, only, the only part I'm going to talk about this game is uh, the second period from... The start of the second period until McDavid's goal, uh, it was pretty much all flyers. Um, McDavid's goal came uh, with 7:26 left in the second period. So the first 12:34, it was nothing but the Flyers generating chances. It did kind of die down um, in the middle of the period. Let's see, I have the note here. Um, the line of JVR, Bunneman, and Raffle were cycled on. Uh, there, there was a 49-second cycle and it ended with 12:48. So for the first seven. 12 of the second period. It was nothing but the Flyers coming into the zone and creating high-end chances. Some of the chances were um, Voracek almost beat Koskinen uh, five-hole, grabbed his own rebound, and was uh, was tangled up with, uh, I think it was Bear, long enough that the Oilers were able to ice it down the, uh, were able to ice it, and that was mainly because of uh, Voracek's pressure. Uh, following uh, play, Sanheim has a shot uh, that's deflected just wide off the face-off, a little bit after that, Drew has an, that incredible uh, incredible spinning pass along the right wall to uh, Sandheim cutting into the slot, who couldn't quite handle the pass, but it was a wonderful pass from Drew. It would have been wide open for a goal. Uh, Konechny covers Sandheim at the point, and then it starts a passing sequence where he gives it to Drew. In the left corner, he gives it Couturier in the left circle, who backhands a pass to a cutting Sandheim yet again into the slot, but his chance goes just wide. This forces McDavid's line to ice it. Uh, then JVR, Lawton, and Ralph will come out with Ghost and Hag, and they cycle for a minute and one second against the tired McDavid line. And the Oilers didn't get a legitimate chance uh, until about three, three and a half minutes into the second period. Uh, Twerinsky and Bunneman lose a board battle along the right wall, and it pretty much uh, results in Neil going to the opposite side of the ice. And nobody kind of wreck. Everybody loses Neil in coverage. The puck goes over to him, and Hart is able to stop him. That was the only real chance the Oilers had until, you know, the three line lob pass to a guarded forward worked out. The usual play that everybody expects to happen, and uh, result in a goal. But uh, that's. 
I mean, that's going to be the first edition of this line-by-line. Line. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I don't know how this is going to be. I don't know if you guys are going to enjoy this. I don't know if it's too boring with me talking about just strictly hockey plays for an hour. I don't know how it is. I, I don't know. And I'm losing my mind, as you can tell. Uh, but I, I want to say that this is going to be... I'm hoping this is the final time I'm talking about games that aren't the game that just happened, if that makes sense. Like, this is based on the Canucks, the Flames, and Oilers games, and this is going to go out tomorrow, but they just play the Stars tonight. My goal is to, starting before the Blackhawks game, I want to get the Knights and Stars game done by Wednesday. That was my goal. We'll see what happens. You know, life happens. Stupid stuff came up this week. The late games didn't help, and I know I keep, I know I've mentioned that a bunch, but I, you know, this is a process I'm trying to iron out through. Uh, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't take long for me to to figure it out. But I'm, I'm trying to figure out ways to quicken up the process. Uh, I'm gonna go back and rewatch every game, and I'm gonna take detailed notes on like what's happening. So even if it isn't the line by line, like if this process is too too long, then at the very least I'm going to try and just make at least one article, if not one or two after every game, about the little things that happen in the game and just kind of explain things that most people, I guess, aren't honing in on or things that won't necessarily show up in a game report or the box score or advanced stats anywhere. You know, all those types of things. And I want to say I'm going to be... Uh, the, the post, I'm not going to be happy with the post either because, you know, I tried to write everything out the first week. I felt like I was taking too long... I mean, that process was way too long. It took me five days to do the first game, so I can't write everything out. I thought doing it this way where I would be able to vocalize the plays and you guys could look at the numbers would be the easiest way to do it. Uh, now that I've got that kind of figured out, I can kind of look at ways to trim that up, and then hopefully I can start cutting down time enough to where the post, I'm able to put more things in the post, like GIFs and pictures explaining the certain plays I'm talking about. I haven't done that yet for this podcast i'm not going to do it now because it's 11 o'clock on a saturday and i'm trying to finish this and get it out uh so hopefully for the one on wednesday it is done and also if i keep putting these out after the next game you know like if i keep missing if i was to put the next one out on friday and it doesn't include the blackhawks game i don't know how much longer i want to do this considering you know it is a lot of work and i i may not be able to turn it out in quick order but uh, if you are listening and you are interested, thank you very much. This has been a lot of work. I, I plan on doing it. I like doing the work. It's just uh, I wish one way or another I'm going to I'm gonna figure out a way to just kind of get everything I'm finding and just getting out in a smooth, easy way to listen or read about it. Uh, so, again, thanks for, thanks for taking your time to listen to me. And hopefully this wasn't too long-winded, wasn't too boring, wasn't too anything. I can promise the next couple months we'll have more donkey sauce. I, I'm figuring out ways to kind of angle these to be a, a better breakdown of what's happening on the ice. So it won't be as boring or setting the table as the next uh, one or two. As usual, sports are bad on Twitter. Uh, we are going to try to get a fly properly out tomorrow on Monday for you guys. Uh, with the Flyers forecast, and then I think we're also going to try and do another fly properly on Wednesday. This is all me without talking to Steve, so let me see what's going on first. But uh, yeah, guys, hopefully you liked it, and uh, I'll see you around.